Some of the contributors, such as Hassan, here today, draw on their refugee backgrounds. Others, including Tim, employ their imagination and empathy. Nor wrote a powerful essay, A Time to, Lift, a Time to Lie, which has inspired this evening's event. I want to share a short extract from Hannah Qureshi's essay, These Mysterious Strangers, The New Story of the Immigrant. The immigrant has become a contemporary passion in Europe, the vacant point around which ideals clash. Easily available as a token, existing everywhere and nowhere, he is talked about constantly. But in the current public conversation, this figure has not only migrated from one country to another, he has migrated from reality to the collective imagination, where he has been transformed into a terrible fiction. Whether he or she, and I will call the immigrant he, while being aware that he is stripped of colour, gender and character, the immigrant has been made into something resembling an alien. He is an example of the undead who will invade, colonise and contaminate, a figure we can never quite digest or vomit. If the 20th century was replete with uncanny, semi-fictional figures who invaded the decent, upright and hard-working, the pure, this character is rewarding us in the guise of the immigrant. He is both a familiar, insidious figure and a new edition of an old idea expressed with refreshed and forceful rhetoric. <coughs> Hate skews reality even more than love. If the limits of the world are made by language, we need better words for all of this. The idea of the immigrant creates anxiety only because he is unknown and has to be kept that way. The role of artists and writers in affecting change is a theme taken up by A.L. Kennedy in her rousing essay that concludes the country of refuge. Kennedy observes, true art is not an indulgence, but a fundamental defense of humanity. She goes on to argue that writers in particular have a duty to respond to the media, propaganda, and public opinion as guardians of imagination, of wider thought, of culture. Because, she warns, Imagination is on all sides apparently failing, and when it fails, it fails us all. I've always believed that writers are uniquely placed to challenge preconceived ideas and stereotypes because of their understanding of the power of words and their ability to articulate truths. I wanted a country of refuge to demonstrate that art is stronger than propaganda, compassion a more vital force than distrust. The anthology was received warmly. One reader bought 650 copies to give to our MPs to read over Christmas. <coughs> Soon after its publication, I began thinking about how stories and images of children affect public opinion. The photograph of three-year-old Alan Curdy's corpse lying face down in the sand, and the Syrian boy in an ambulance, covered in blood and dust, jolted some people out of their apathy towards the refugee crisis. Then a trickle of child refugees were allowed into the UK, and I was struck by the vitriol against those who were older teenagers. Surely vulnerable young adults also deserve our, um, our empathy. Surely we are relieved that there aren't more seven-year-old children attempting the perilous journey to Europe and ending up in the jungle or other camps. I was horrified by our government's treatment of child refugees and their heartless decision to deny help to thousands of lone asylum seekers under the age of 15. All these different narratives convinced me that an anthology about the experiences of children might encourage the next generation to have a kinder response to refugees and asylum seekers and better understand some of the reasons people are forced to flee their native countries. I firmly believe that we need creative works to challenge the political messaging around refugees. We need words, an outpouring of words that will persuade people of the very real need to identify with our fellow humans. My dream is that a country to call home will be read widely in schools, perhaps even on the national curriculum. And it's due to come out now, I managed to crowdfund and it's due to come out in um, June next year during Refugee Week. So look out for it. We will never stop seeing refugees. There will always be people fleeing conflict, persecution or poverty. But how we respond to them needs to change. Over half of the world's refugees are children. Many will have experienced unimaginable horrors and will need kindness and understanding in order to process their trauma. 
Ideally, we would have clinics modelled on the work of freedom from torture in every town, dedicated to provide counselling to all those devastated by war. Realistically, this is unlikely, but kindness and empathy are within the grasp of us all. Stories, poems and essays can counter the demonisation of those seeking sanctuary on these shores. One day, there will come a time when we will need care and understanding. Someone to speak up on our behalf. I don't want to live in a society where there is no one left to speak up for me. Thank you. So yeah, I, uh, Lucy invited me to, to contribute to this anthology, and it just so happened that I, uh, I was in Italy for a book festival, and I met the wife of uh, an academic called Roberto, uh, no, yeah, Roberto Beneduce, and he'd written um, uh, an essay uh, based on his research, and he called it The, the Moral Economy of, uh, sorry, <clears throat> the moral economy of lying. And he looks at why uh, asylum seekers lie. And I think this is a really important subject because when it comes to refugees, the, the sort of hostile sentiment that's quite prevalent in, in, in certain sections of the British media has uh, you know, led people to believe uh, that uh, asylum seekers, uh, refugees, um, somehow kind of lack a, a moral fibre. <clears throat> that you know the immigrant is here to you know pollute our culture, and that somehow they come from societies that 
are kind of, you know, not as morally upstanding as uh, they are in the West. And, you know, this perception is, is almost confirmed uh, in the eyes of at least people who work uh, in immigration by the fact that when they come across uh, asylum seekers, they often lie in their application forms. <clears throat> But you know, there's a very good reason for this, and, and, and you know, we have to remember as well that um, you know, when you're coming to going to another country, even if it's just to go on holiday, I find that you know the stakes feel so high that you know, even when you're applying for a tourist visa, sometimes you almost have this temptation to leave things out of your application form. You know, I mean, I, I recently tried to go to Pakistan, and uh, my application was refused. But, uh, you know, when I was writing it out, they were asking me, you know, which countries have you been to before and where have you worked before? And I was thinking, oh, gosh, you know, maybe I shouldn't mention that, you know, I, I work at the Times sometimes. And, um, and I was very tempted to lie. And this was just to go on holiday, you know. So, um, you know, the stakes are clearly a million times higher when people are coming um, over um, to, in order to, you know, they're, they're fleeing persecution and all sorts. Um, <clears throat> But I think there's a huge cultural fault uh, that lies between people who work in immigration uh, here in, in England and those who are seeking asylum over here. And I think one of the biggest uh, misconceptions of people who, especially people who don't really travel in the third world, <clears throat> or have no experience in the third world, is that they don't realize how flimsy the bureaucracy in, in the third world is. So someone comes over here and uh, is asked to produce evidence of their suffering. I imagine, you know, you're fleeing war in, in South Sudan. You know, imagine you're a, a, a teenage girl <clears throat> who's been gang raped, for example, and they're asking you to provide evidence of this. I mean, even if she had gone to the police, in a lot of these countries, you know, the police don't maintain records of these things uh, and even if they did maintain records how could she obtain them you know who who can refer back to the that particular police station in some village somewhere and, and ask for documentation of this girl's suffering uh, you know these are the issues that some of these people face uh, that sometimes they're asked how old they are and they can't prove it because in a lot of countries you know, the bureaucracy just isn't there. A child is born in a village, and unless someone actually decides to go by the Roman calendar and remember the date, you know, that, that they, they may not actually note the day that that person was born, and there is no birth certificate, and it's not stored in some national database. Uh, all they know is that they were born during the rains, or just after the full moon, you know, something like that. Uh, I mean, I have family who are like that. One, I think my eldest aunt, I remember asking her, you know, her star sign when I was a baby, and, you know, she, had, she didn't have a clue. You know, she, she didn't know, she couldn't tell me the exact day that she was born. Um, and, you know, so that's the, that's the kind of, you know, bureaucratic uh, frailty that we're dealing with. And even I, I was born in Nigeria, I came over to England when I was a baby, but my birth certificate is, is just literally... A pink piece of paper um, and I, I found it about three years ago and I realized looking at it it's like this is the only evidence I have um, the only proof that I have of where I was born and, and so I realized oh my god I'd better run to a print shop and, and get it laminated and you know and I've also <laughs> photographed it as well and just you know just created lots of copies and uh, to make sure but you know if, if I had lost that in a fire or something, there'd literally be no evidence of my birth, no proof of my, my birth. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of thing that people are having to deal with. And, and so they find themselves having to lie. And they're lying under duress. Uh, they're coming up with information that doesn't tally. They'll fill out one form and say one thing, and they'll fill out another form and say another. And then this apparent mendacity weakens their case. You know, people think, well, this person is clearly lying. They're, they're an economic migrant. They're not running away from anything real. Um, you've also got another cultural issue, which is uh, 
kind of spirituality, you know, pre-Islamic, pre-Christian animist beliefs, uh, which is obviously something that, particularly in the in the West, where empiricism, you know, is is the norm, people find very difficult to take seriously. And you can have uh, people, uh, uh, asylum seekers, who are fleeing, you know, a genuine kind of threat uh, that they, you know, perceive. Uh, to be under, um, which can have real psychological effects on them as well, you know, and, and you know they might self harm and all sorts as a result, and so their sense of persecution is real, and in some cases the actual persecution is real in a spiritual sense, and um, and they're you know they're running away from that, and, uh, but it's very difficult for for you know an immigration officer who comes from an entirely different mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, to understand that. Um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. Uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so also, the, there's a kind of... the idea of what persecution is, as well, in the West, I think has been really informed uh, very strongly by the Holocaust. Uh, there's this real sense of uh, persecution on a very broad cross-section of society. It's that, that sort of, you know, like the Nazis sweeping across Germany, checking under floorboards for, for, for Jews in hiding. Uh, they really don't understand how uh, certain people can come from... Uh, you know, can seek asylum having come fled a village, whereas other people in that village are living there quite happily. And immigration officers will say, well, you know, you've got other people living there. You know, if they can live there, why can't you? And again, that fuels this perception that uh, the asylum seeker is, is, is simply lying. But uh, oppression and persecution can happen in very strange ways, you know, in, in the third world. And it's, it's not as efficient, uh, you know, as, as the Nazi system. Uh, and, and it's not as broad sweeping. And, and you can see that even in, in my family. Um, my father, he was uh, killed alongside eight of his colleagues in, in 1995. Um, and he was put in prison in 1993 by a military dictatorship. But his younger brother, my uncle, uh, you know, was served in the military and only recently retired. Now, some people would find that very strange. It's like, how can you have one member of a family serving in the military and then another family uh, member, their relative, their brother, being uh, murdered by a, a military regime? But that, that is how it works in, in Nigeria and, and certainly in other countries as well. Uh, you know, one of my cousins uh, fled... Uh, to Chicago, sought asylum there, and has raised a family there ever since. Another of my aunts had to do the same. Uh, but then I have other aunts and uncles who stayed in Nigeria. Uh, but, you know, my, particularly my cousin, he, he'd spent time in prison. They sought him out, you know, and that's what they do. They will seek out a particular person for their activism while leaving the rest of their family alone. Uh, because persecution let's say, in Nigeria in the 90s, was not based on ethnicity. It's, it's based on your activism. You know, it's who is having uh, a pop at the government and, and posing a threat. And so, again, it's, uh, that's a, a, another hurdle that asylum seekers have to deal with. Uh, and then there's also the, the replaying of their trauma as well. You talk to any psychotherapist and, 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 you know, they will tell you that you don't just ask someone who has watched uh, their loved one being beheaded or has been gang raped. You don't ask them to relive the details of, of that trauma. And people who've suffered trauma as well, they often don't remember it in a straightforward way. You know, their memories are fragmented. You know, that's what the mind does when it's been exposed. Uh, to those kind of horrifying acts. And, and so people, again, the asylum seekers trying to piece together what has happened. And under those circumstances, they may, you know, they're not going to remember the details of what happened. They're not, they might not even remember their parents' middle name. You know, just the details that you would expect them to know. It's all jumbled up. 
uh, because they're traumatized. And they're being asked, they're, they're speaking to someone who has no training in any of this, who's looking at them in a very skeptical way and who is disbelieving their story. You know, and when your suffering isn't validated in that way, it can be, it can re-traumatize you. And so, you know, these are some of the issues that uh, asylum seekers are having to deal with. And under those circumstances, uh, you'll find that the information they give is inconsistent, and sometimes they lie. Uh, I'll just touch quickly on um, also the criteria for asylum can change a lot from year to year in a way that makes sense to us in, in, in the West because, you know, certain stories occupy the news agenda. So, you know, one year there'll be a civil war in, in Ivory Coast. And then the next year, it might be South Sudan. And then, you know, in future years, it could be uh, the Rohingya people in, in, in Myanmar. Um, and so you have this, the, the, the criteria for who qualifies as an asylum seeker changes according almost partly to the news agenda, which is very confusing to a girl who has been gang raped but comes from Eritrea and, um, and is, you know, is basically being told, well, no, you won't uh, be selected, but uh, you know, this person from this country, you know, that, that they qualify. See, that doesn't make sense to them. You know, for them, that's as unfathomable as you know, animist spiritualism is to the immigration official. Um, and so, you know, the, the woman who has given birth by cesarean section and has a scar might say, point to that scar and pretend that she's been stabbed because she feels that her story of being gang raped you know, won't pass muster. And so, you know, she will try to tailor uh, her, her, her story to correspond with this sort of ever-shifting <coughs> criteria as to who qualifies for asylum. Um, so, you know, the, these, are, the, these are the kind of issues that I think the general public really need to consider when it, it comes to the issue of asylum seeking. You know, obviously it's complicated. You can't open the floodgates and let everyone in. But I feel that there's a, a general lack of compassion uh, in the discussion around uh, asylum. And um, I, I just think people need to stop and really think about what refugees are going through and, and, and the reasons why uh, they behave the way that they do uh, when, when seeking asylum in this country. Um, and so, yeah, this uh, Roberto Beneduce's uh, essay, I, I can't remember where I got it from. I know his wife emailed it to me. I, I, I'm not sure. It must be available online somewhere, but... Um, I quote lots of chunks from it uh, in, in, in the book, so you can, you can read it there. Uh, and, uh, it's definitely worth a read, because uh, he, he's done some excellent work in, in, in that field. Thank you. Tim, do you want to go next? Mm-hmm. I've no idea how, how <coughs> long eight minutes is, so I've put my stopwatch on. Um, I'm, I'm conscious that this is a festival ideas and not a not a, a literary festival, but nonetheless, obviously, the, the the reason why we're all here together is we contributed to this anthology. So I thought I would, if you don't mind, just read a, read the, a very small section from my contribution to it, uh, and then develop some of the ideas that that Nu has been talking about and which are very interesting in in her essay. Uh, my 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 story is called a, a refugee's story, and it starts like this. Um, this is the story of a policy analyst, a campaigner, and a journalist. They all worked on refugee issues. The policy analyst said, what's the solution? The campaigner said, what's the message? The journalist said, what's the story? It's also the story of a writer. The writer said, what's the story? That's what I said, said the journalist. So you did, said the writer. What I should have said is, what's her story? Her story, said the campaigner and the policy analyst. Who's she? Good question, said the writer. At this stage, I don't know. Tell me about it, said the journalist. I'm always asking for her story, whoever she is. Stories like hers make all the difference. Don't look at me, said the campaigner. I'm looking at you because you could help me, but you rarely do, said the journalist. That's because her story is not just a story, it's her life, said the campaigner. It's not for me to tell it to you. I don't want you to tell it to me, said the journalist. I want her to tell it to me. And it's not for me to tell her to tell it. 
said the campaigner, to you or to anyone else. If she wants to tell it, fine, but if she doesn't, no story, said the journalist. You can make it up, said the writer. No, you couldn't, said the journalist, laughing. Sorry, said the policy analyst. You couldn't make it up, said the journalist, still laughing. Don't look at me, said the campaigner. The journalist was looking at her again. What I mean is I could, said the writer. Make it up, that is. I couldn't, said the journalist. Could either of you? She was looking at the campaigner and the policy analyst. No, I work with real people, true lives, said the campaigner, shaking her head. Yes, I work with hard facts, the best evidence, said the policy analyst, nodding his head. Four million Syrians, said the writer, that sort of thing. Yes, that sort of thing, said the policy analyst. And when you know that, what more needs to be said, said the campaigner to the writer. Don't answer, let me, said the journalist to the writer. Four million Syrians is a number, not a story. No, it's a number that tells a story, said the campaigner. Or begs a story, said the writer. Tell me about it, said the journalist, laughing again. And so it goes on. So uh, the, uh, the reason I just read a little bit about that is that that... that um, that, that, that my contribution there is sort of three things at once. It, it, it's um, it, it's a it's a bit of sort of tricksy sub Beckettian sort of nonsense for people who like that sort of thing. Not everybody does. Uh, it's uh, it, it's it is actually a, a creed occur uh, for something I feel quite strongly about, which is that the, the rather stifling orthodoxy of what a refugee story amounts to. Uh, there is particularly in the publishing industry, there's a tendency to view a certain sort of very linear, narrative, realist type of way of telling the story. And, and, that's, and, and if it's not that, it isn't really an, of interest to them. That's particularly a problem for, for uh, writers of, from a refugee background trying to write fiction. Changed a bit recently, I think. And then the, 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 the third element of it is it's an element of autobiography about it, because I have been, as, as, as a little bit of my... Um, CV read out, read out by Lucy suggests I've been all of those things, a writer, a journalist, a policy analyst, a campaigner, but pretty much everything in between as well on, on, on this issue. Uh, and and, and I, so I was trying to explore how I dealt with these issues in, in those different roles. Uh, so I just sort of want to touch on each of them and then the nature of what it means to try and be truthful uh, through these various areas, because it is a very... Um, uh, it's a very hard concept to deal with in these different areas, and, and, and something approaching the truth is different depending on what you want to do. And if I could start with the, with the writer bit, I mean, that's the bit that's most recent in my, in my life, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in, uh, qualifying increasingly as a writer and confident to say it. I should just plug uh, my own book, uh, The House of Journalists. Uh, I was going to say it's available in all good bookshops, but actually it isn't these days. It's available in one bad bookshop, really. On, you know what it is, it's online. It, the, good, the good thing about it is you can probably get it for about a penny, as long as, long as you pay the postage and packing as well. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, it can be found there. Um, a bit harder in real bookshops, but as a as a uh, as a, a, a writer around these issues, the things I thing I really like about uh, um, fiction and, uh, and and indeed other forms of the arts is that the is that, is that the, the truth is not a simple idea. And in fact, I think what's really important about good writing on this subject is it doesn't try and pretend it is. Uh, I think the worst uh, uh, art in this area, and as Lucy pointed out, I, 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 I'm the founder of a, a charity that works in this area, and so we have a lot, lot, lot of that sort of thing. We commission a lot of things, we, we provide platforms for them, we interact with a lot of artists, but we do get quite a lot of bad stuff, and the bad stuff is stuff that tries to that isn't isn't good writing or good art. It's campaigning dressed up as as a story. Uh, and, and, and the problem with it is, is, it, is it, it, it fails to do what writing, the best writing can do, which is give you multiple perspectives and see the truth from different angles and not try and suggest that there are, it, it's, it's simple and, and, and everything would be all right if it wasn't for these terribly bad people in the home office. Uh, and, 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 you, and I'm sure you've all read uh, works of fiction which are sort of <coughs> fall into the trap of just basically being a lecture about uh, about um, the refugee crisis and, and 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 people basically parading their consciences rather than actually doing the hard work it seems to me of understanding um, why it is we're in the world we're in. On the journalist thing is a different. For many years, I was a journalist working on this issue, and, it, and in one sense, you might think that's more straightforward. You know, you tell the facts as you see them, and of course, that is important. And, and Lucy points it out. This is a very polluted well. Uh, there is you know, there's, there's downright pernicious journalism. 
uh, you know, fake news is not something that came along uh, in the Trumpian era. We've, we've, it goes right back to you know, swan bake headlines and all the darknesses around uh, the refugee crisis back in the early 2000s, if not earlier than that. But nonetheless, it, is, it, it isn't a straightforward task to uh, say what is, what is the truth or what is the right thing to do in these circumstances. And, uh, and, and I, I, I personally think that the most important journalism also allows itself a, a degree of complexity and the ability to look at this, this issue from a number of different perspectives. So in a strange way, I like the campaign, the straightforward campaigning journalism least, at least in the sense where it's sort of, you know, I, I, we, we've got a moral crusade type of thing. Uh, wh where I think journalism can, can play the most useful role uh, is you may have, uh, some of you may have heard of, an excellent series that ran for, are still running, in fact, on the on the World at One program on BBC Radio Four. Uh, one of the great advantages of being uh, my age is that that, that I, you know, I've now reached the stage where there are people I hired in the BBC. Uh, you know, they got given gave them their first break, who are now award winning journalists. And one of them is this woman, Manveen Rana. Most recently, uh, did the Bell Pottinger story in South Africa, but earlier on followed a refugee family uh, right through the Balkan route into Germany and it was it was low on sort of rhetoric and moral outrage and it was high on humanity and so much more interesting for that and, and in particular one of the things was that it didn't stop with the sort of arrival in Germany she's kept in touch with them and, it, and what's been so interesting is that you have began to see uh, how even when people find safety, that is by no means the end of the journey. That family's had a lot of problems. Uh, the, the parents have ended up divorcing. I think the father's gone back to Germany. The, the, the family have broken up in many ways, and that's happened in Germany. <coughs> then the policy analyst bit of it, which I think is, 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 is in many ways, I, you know, I worked as a, at a think tank on policy issues on this, and, and, and I, I, in many ways, find that the most sort of respectable thing <laughs> I ever did, uh, because... It's hard, really hard, to think of good policy. And it's given me an insight and indeed a good deal of sympathy for the politicians and the officials in working in this area. Because what are the solutions to this issue? It really isn't easy to think about. What is the solution to Calais? You know, I've, I've met campaigners who sometimes suggest that, you know, Calais a terrible thing. And what, ha what happened there? Well, what, what do you do about it? You know, what, what, what is the suggestion? Is it just get to Calais, say you want to come to Britain, you can come in? Is, I mean, is, is that a solution? It, it's certainly not a politically viable one. So but policy analysts and, and officials and, and, and indeed politicians, let's, let's, it's, it's hard being the Home Secretary or the Immigration Minister, and we shouldn't forget that. They, they, they're, they're not always the best of people, but they're struggling with something really difficult. And then, in one sense, I've sort of gone back now to being a, a campaigner on this issue, and that's fine, but bear in mind one thing about campaigners. Campaigners are, are telling you something that's way more straightforward than is true. They're sort of telling you, you know, it would all be all right if, you, if only we did this. You know, sign my petition, come out and do this protest, do that, and everything will be all right. It's, it, it's, there's a place for it, and it's important, but, it, and, but it, it, it's, it's, it's only one version of the truth. And, and even the most uh, dedicated camp, campaigner or supporter of campaigns needs to bear that in mind. So I'm just going to end by, by, by reflecting on the film I've been working on. Uh, the, the Iowa Wave film, and stop there. Because I think the, 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 the thing about this film that I found a bit frustrating working on it was that Iowa Wave doesn't deal in complexity. He, de he deals in big, simple, bold stuff. Uh, and, and at times I found that frustrating. I was thinking, you know, we, it, it's, it, all we're doing here is just saying, isn't it awful? Someone's got to do something about it. But, uh, but what I thought was, over time, I, grand, I, I learnt to see it through his eyes. And this, uh, this is where I think the, the, the issue of truth comes into it that's really important. Where he absolutely got it right at the beginning is that there is a truth. Uh, it seemed to me a very fundamental one. That truth is that the world is a world of movement. And we have to learn a way to, to deal with it. If we try and turn our back on it and construct fortresses, it's, it's, it's not only morally indefensible, it's totally futile. So the, that, that truth is really, really important. And that's why the, the Trump, the EU-Turkey deal, what's happening, they're, they're just patrolling the Mediterranean border. We've got to do better than that. Uh, but he, in a sense, he, he says that in a very, very effective way. I urge you to see the film. It, you know, it will move you. The next step, though, is go, it has to be, if you're serious about it, 
to think about what are the small things you might do that are solutions to this, practical solutions. And that takes me back to what I'm doing now, which is uh, promoting the community sponsorship of refugees. I won't talk about it now, but one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is it is a practical solution to a very small practical solution to a very intractable problem. I'll stop there. So the essay I have in the book is about my experience coming here to Britain as a refugee from Iraq. Uh, but the story I will talk to today about is about somebody else. Uh, and it's really more or less like a kind of a case study that I think will illustrate some of the points that were already made uh, by the two other speakers. Um, I um, was uh, offered the chance to go out to the Calais jungle with the uh, Gay Theatre in London uh, with a group of artists. And we had a chance to stay there for a week, uh, running workshops for the theater workshops for the uh, refugees. Uh, and I met, of course, many different people. Calais Jungle was, uh, as you've all probably have read about it, or, or maybe some of you even have been there, uh, know, uh, it was kind of a horrific place. Um, uh, there was no government presence. Uh, everything was really done by a lot of it by volunteers. Uh, uh, and... Um, but I was quite interested to meet uh, people who have come from Iraq. And one gentleman I met, who I will talk, the bulk of my talk is about him. I'll give him a, the false name of Hadi. That's not his real name. He was, he was very sensitive when, he, when I told him today I, I will be talking about him. So he, he agreed to it, but he has some caveats, which I will uh, observe. Uh, Hadi was this big sort of giant of a man that just stood in the middle of the Calais jungle. Your, your eye just kind of was drawn to him. Um, he had a very warm personality um, and wanted to kind of chat with anybody that would chat with him. Um, so I ended up sort of taking him to one of the makeshift restaurants that were there in, in Kelam. I mean, I call it restaurants. It's basically a tent with a, with a few sort of benches you could, you could sit down. And um, he told me his story of why he'd left Iraq. Um, and that was because he, he, um, he was running a fish restaurant uh, in a part in Baghdad, uh, a Shia part, uh, and that's his uh, religious background, he's a Shia. And uh, one time he was uh, getting a shipment uh, of fish, and it was stopped by ISIS fighters, and they robbed him of it, and that uh, kind of ruined his business. That was the story he told me at the time. And then we kept in touch, uh, he kept we kept sort of calling, uh, texting. Uh, when I tried to get his email, he was kind of shy about it. And then he confessed to me that he's illiterate. But he's a maverick with the phone. He knows how to copy and paste. Uh, he's, uh, uh, and he's made a lot of friends in, from all over the world in the, in the camp. He's kind of very sweet. And people um, uh, keep in touch with him, uh, including my, uh, myself. He then managed to come over to Britain. Uh, how he did it, I don't know. Mm. There were people who were uh, much younger than him, much fitter. Um, you know, yeah, to really get uh, to, to cross into Britain, you have to climb over these fences that the British government, I, I don't know how, long, how much they spent building, um, and then to get to the trucks and then hide in the trucks. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of a mad thing to do it. And I knew many other people who were younger and fitter who hadn't managed, but somehow he, he did it. And he crossed over uh, to Britain. Um, and, uh, of course, it's very, very hard for him. He doesn't... Uh, 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 speak the language. Even his Arabic is, is rudimentary. Um, he was transferred from place to place. First he was interviewed by the Home Office in Croydon, then went to Wigan, then went to Liverpool, then went to Manchester. Um, so now when I interviewed him for preparing for this talk, his story was somewhat different. Mm. He told me something that they had mentioned in the camp, that he was what is called Bedoun. Uh, he was a Kuwaiti, um, uh, an Arab uh, uh, who lived in Kuwait and had this Bedouin status. Bedouin status is um, Iraqi Bedouins who lived in Kuwait from the formation of, of the state of Kuwait, but the state of Kuwait never recognized them. And actually, he ended up using that as the reason for coming here. Now, I would have thought his ISIS story was incredible and, and would have been believed, but 
the British government uh, was only accepting Iraqis at a certain point, and uh, at later points, it sort of deemed it, well, you know, it's safe enough for you to live there, despite the car bombs, despite the fact that it was our action in invading Iraq that turned it into an oasis for ISIS and other terrorists. Um, you know, the officials um, decided that that um, you could live there. So uh, Hadi, you know, shifted to the story that made more sense. Yeah. Um, probably somebody advised him mm. that part of your life is the one you should mm. you should uh, you should kind of use as as a reason to, to come. So this this then puts into frame the question. Does that make him a bogus asylum seeker, to use that horrible word that, that is often used against? Um, or is he really just somebody in a situation um, that is uh, kind of um, uh, life and death, and, um, and he has to pick the best story for survival, in a way? Um, and uh, um, I, I read recently in, a, in an essay, you know, um, I think Immanuel Kant had this... Um, um, uh, example in, in, in one of his writings, you know, if a murderer comes to your house and says to you, uh, asking you, where is your friend, uh, a friend of yours, where is he hiding, would you tell him, a known man, murderer? Uh, Emmanuel Kant said, I would say the truth. I sh you should always tell the truth. And in a way, our asylum system is almost like that. But I think most of us would lie in this situation because the, the, the consequences of telling the truth is, is horrific. Most of us would not follow Immanuel Kant in, uh, in that regard. And I think a lot of asylum seekers are, uh, are in that case. Uh, he is, uh, for those who might think asylum seekers are living a life of luxury, you know, his rent is 330 pounds a month, but he only gets 260 pounds uh, towards it. So he has to make up the 70 pounds uh, that he has. He's also given some benefits, 140 pounds a week, but that is supposed to be to his food. So really he's left with a kind of a net of 210 pounds after paying his uh, rent and so on to live on for a, for a month. Now, you can all in this audience try and imagine living on 210 pounds. This is not a life of luxury. These people are not leaving you know, a business that he had in Iraq to come here um, uh, for that. It, it's, it is a, a struggle. Uh, of course, his, his, his situation is compounded by the fact that he doesn't speak um, uh, the language. Uh, so in thinking about him, I uh, also thought, uh, because I, my background before becoming a writer um, uh, was a biologist, I, I thought a little bit about sort of the science of lying and why, why we lie. And of course, lying is... Um, is, is a survival uh, mechanism. It exists in nature. There are different types of lying that one can find in nature, like uh, what is called programmed false appearance, uh, which is what moths do. For example, moths can disguise themselves by having their wings looking like the, the eyes of an owl, so a predator would pass them by. Or um, programmed false behavior, which is uh, some birds who find injury uh, so that um, the predator would pay attention to them and not to their children. Um, uh, learned false behavior, which is uh, a dog who may fake injury just so that you would be uh, get, elicit a sympathetic human response. And then the one that really concerns humans is learned planned deception, which is a, con a conscious attempt to manipulate other people's beliefs and actions. Um, and chimpanzees and ba baboons do this at a simple level, but, but humans uh, do it. Uh, as well. Uh, one really interesting experiment, so this is something in nature, this, you know, lying is, is a survival mechanism and, and, um, and under extreme circumstances people uh, would, would be quite likely to lie. Uh, one, one experiment that, that is relevant to this um, that was done, they divided people into uh, several uh, groups, uh, a set of 68 volunteers, and they gave them, um, some people were given a placebo to inhale, and other people were given the hormone oxytocin, which is important for social bonding. And then they were uh, asked to play a game of uh, guess the coin, uh, you know, uh, head or tails, basically. Um, and they were told, uh, for in your group, uh, if, you, if you do well, if you guess well, uh, you will all benefit as a, as a group. 
the ones who are given the oxytocin, which is the social bonding, which happens in any sort of group activity, our, our levels increase, uh, they lied. Then when they repeated the experiment and said to them, um, uh, you will benefit, not the group. You as an individual will benefit. People did not lie. In other words, what that means is that um, people have the tendency to lie if a group is going to benefit. Now, of course, um, and asylum seekers often sometimes come with their family. So it's not just an individual uh, saying something uh, uh, to get what he, what he wants. There is um, uh, other people dependent on, on, on the asylum seeker. <coughs> so they're really in an intense situation where uh, probably their uh, bonding hormone you know, is kind of increasing because uh, they're caring for their, for their family. So it's it, in a situation where it's almost natural to lie, let us say. Um, uh, and so I think there is a, a great deal of complexity to this element about bogus asylum seekers and, and, and you know, this, this moral outrage about them being plain liars who, who, who tell. And actually, if, if you think about it, we realize that this is, you know, um, sometimes it could be a complicated situation like Hadi's, the one I explained, where, you know, which is the story I should pick uh, to tell uh, in, order, in order to get what I want in order to, to survive and, and come to this country. And in other cases, it could be just a kind of biological imperative because you are in danger, because being sent back home is a real danger. Anybody who manages to flee out of Iraq, and I'm talking from 2003 right up to the present moment, they are really fleeing hell. The fact that the British government doesn't recognize it as hell or doesn't want to live up to uh, its responsibility by the fact that we invaded this country and, and made it collapse. It doesn't make it any less of a help. The reality is, in Iraq, you could be walking down the street and a random car bomb goes off and, 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 and you, could, you could die. You could be kidnapped by, by gangs, all sorts of things. Um, so people who, who do flee have a, have a strong imperative to flee. And I think we should really look at this lying in a probably much more nuanced way than the kind of tabloid uh, way that we, that we get in this country. Thank you. And um, 